the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Very pleasant good afternoon to you. It is a Tuesday, the 6th day of August, and great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here each Monday through Friday at this time, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Well, as we lead off this uh, fresh week, at least uh, for me, um, I I think a lot of us uh, have no doubt over the last 48 to 72 hours struggled with trying to make sense of the senseless, and that, of course, is the third such tragic shooting. National Headlines has talked about it being uh, twice over the weekend. It's actually the third in less than a week, if you think about the fact that it was just a week ago last Sunday that shots rang out at the Gilroy Garlic Festival. And then fast forward to Saturday, the tragedy in El Paso, followed by Sunday morning, the tragedy in Ohio. And on and on the list goes. What I find ironic in the American discourse over this topic is the fact that we've seen Las Vegas, Sandy Hook, Columbine, San Bernardino, Charleston, Parkland, El Paso, Dayton, Gilroy, Virginia Beach. In fact, you know what the numbers look like so far? We are 217 days into the year. There have been 255 deaths in mass shootings, mass meaning two or more people shot. In 2018, 340 Americans died, 2017, 346, 2016, 382. At least the numbers are heading downward. However, if barely eight months into the year, we're already at 255, at this rate, we'll probably meet or beat the highest statistics over the last three years. And yet, on the heels of these tragedies, and you wake up in the morning and look at the television news in shock and disbelief and fear over, well, should I take the kids then to the fair this weekend or stay home? Do we go to the amusement park or just play in the backyard? Is the shopping trip to Walmart or wherever really necessary? I mean, it's sad when you now have to weigh the risk when you want to do just simple outdoor real-life activities, and yet, ironically, these are activities that we can't avoid, right? Like it or not, we're going to have to go shopping at some point. Like it or not, we're going to be out in public places. Like it or not, more than any other country on the planet, we are at risk for losing our life or being injured because of a bullet fired by a nutcase in an attempted mass shooting. If Las Vegas wasn't enough to shut down the rhetoric, and and mark my words, if this continues, 
Here's what you'll hear without exception every single time. Political leadership will get on TV, hop on Twitter, go before the press, and will say, sorry, horrible, tragic, brokenhearted, our thoughts and prayers are with you. And you got to wonder at what point do we come to the recognition that the thoughts and prayers comment is just hollow, empty rhetoric. And I guess for a lot of these politicians, they don't know what to do, so the next best choice for them is do nothing. And I'm not going to tell you here that there's any easy answers, to be sure, but there's got to be some answers. At least we've got to try to do something. I cannot, for the life of me, believe that the Founding Fathers, in penning the Second Amendment, articulating Americans' rights to keep and bear arms, that they had in mind this. And if you believe they had in mind this, are you suggesting that they were monsters too? All right, so now it leaves the question, what do you do? How do you respond? And I guess... um, Weapon up might be one answer. Let's just all run around with pistols and shotguns, so if anybody aims at us, we can aim back. Although I find ironic that there's an open carry law in Texas to show you how well that worked. But in the meantime, the harsh reality is when there's a scenario taking place of an active shooter. We saw it here in San Bruno. Nobody died from it, but it just happened three weeks ago at Tanferan Park. What do you do? How do you, in those initial moments of just carrying out your day-to-day life, take the proper steps to try to protect you from becoming another statistic? Brad Ingman joins us now. Brad is co-owner of the Bay Area-based Threat Scenarios. He is one of the top-ranked competitive practical pistol shooters on the West Coast, and he teaches people and organizations on how to respond to these active shooter threats. And Brad, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. I'm sure you've probably talked about this subject over the last uh, 48 hours ad nauseum, but I I am very appreciative that you've... um, decided to spend some time with us. I, I, I guess the big question is, are we just sitting ducks, or are there practical things that we can do in just the conduct of our day-to-day lives to make us less vulnerable to these kinds of attacks? Yes, and, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, it has been an intense past week. Um, there have been a lot of horrific events that have occurred, and uh, frankly, it's a little bit difficult to opine on them sometimes because of the nature of the circumstances. But uh, I would say that, generally speaking, there are things that people can keep in mind. Uh, and we're not talking about everybody having a gun or everybody running around and and, uh, and and shooting at each other. What we're talking about is most civilians just want to go about their day-to-day lives. They want to go to the store. They want to go to the festival. They want to be able to feel safe. And they should, for the most part. These events are, are horrific, and they're very scary, and they are in everybody's minds. But people need to go about their lives. And what we like to emphasize is that there's certain things that people can do, such as developing a plan of action with their family members that they take a couple of minutes to think about that, when put into action, could save them crucial seconds 
in an active shooter situation, and those seconds will matter because law enforcement response is very, very effective these days. Law enforcement is, is trained to move towards the threat and neutralize that threat as soon as possible. So people can do some things that can prevent that freeze response and allow them to act more rapidly, then it might give them the time needed in order to survive one of these types of events. And I'm going to ask you in, in a moment, Brad, to kind of work us through that list. But uh, but before you do, out of curiosity, do we need to begin sort of rethinking this in the fashion of the way we take into consideration safety on an airplane, for example? I mean, uh, millions of Americans get on, you know, big aluminum tubes that fly through the air, and they start at one point, and they end at another, and they go to work, and they head off on vacation. They come back without incident whatsoever. And yet, Nobody listening to the sound of our voices has ever been on an airplane without, unless maybe it's just a small private aircraft, but any commercial jetliner, you're run through a series of safety tips and regulations. Stay seated, put your seatbelt on, know where the exits are, things of this sort. Are we expecting that planes are going to fall out of the sky? No, but are we practical enough to know that it could happen? And if it does, you need to be prepared in advance. Are you talking about essentially the same thing, that we need to have kind of an escape plan or a response plan in mind, that when we head out to some of these larger public venues, that we are, in a sense, prepared for what we hope won't happen, but in case it does, we've got a plan in place? Yes, and forgive me, um, you're coming through a little choppy, so I'll, I'll, I, forgive me if I speak over you. Um, what people, I think, should do is generally come up with a defensive mindset and a bit of situational awareness. When people are on an airplane, they know what the potential risks are. Prior to 9-11, those risks mostly involved the airplane crashing. Post-9-11, people evolved almost instantly up until Flight 93, where people knew it was happening on that airplane, and they reacted in order to stop the, uh, the, the terrorists. Uh, people, based on their environments and based on what the public consciousness is, start to think about, well, what should I do if that were to happen, if something becomes more close to home like it was for us in Gilroy and for the people in El Paso and for the people in Dayton. Once it hits closer to home, people start thinking that they should come up with their own safety plan. And I think that's always a good thing, because a safety plan is useful not just in active shooter situation, but it's useful in all other types of emergencies, including fires or earthquakes or, in the Midwest, tornadoes, hurricanes down in Florida. There's a lot of things that can happen within your environment that could pose a deadly threat to you, and knowing what to do is always helpful. The fact that active shooters have become more prevalent recently just means to me that that's something else that people have to consider and they have to have a conversation with their family about and kind of develop that emergency plan, yes. But I'm not suggesting that they should dwell on it. Let's spend a moment after a quick timeout going through some of the details of what that emergency plan needs to look like. And if you've just joined us, we're visiting today with the Brad Ingman. Brad is co-owner of the Bay Area-based Threat Scenarios. And, of course, we're seeing uh, more and more arenas that need to be prepared for this. It's hard to believe that the shooting at 101 California Street back in the 90s has only escalated since then. So having companies that are prepared to respond... If you're facing an existential threat, it's happened at newspapers, it happened It happened at YouTube here not all that long ago in San Bruno. So how do companies respond? How do you, as a church organization, maybe be prepared for something like this when you've got a large gathering of people 
all with their backs turned to the main entrance. What things do you need to be in mind and what do companies and organizations need to be thinking of in working with people like Brad to make sure that you've got the best scenario in place to minimize the potential threat? Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of the conversation. might be good to grab a pen and paper here. We're going to go through some of that laundry list of what some of the steps are that you need to take in in mind and be prepared for. Brad Engman with us today. We'll take a time out and come back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Right now here at 518, we're going to step aside for a moment, get you updated on traffic, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Brad Engman, co-owner of the Bay Area-based Threat Scenarios, is with us today. We're talking about the tragic events of the last uh, week, months, years, and getting some inside tips as to what you can do is just John Q. Public, just going about your business to be better prepared. And I suppose one of the the first things, Brad, is that it's going to vary from scenario to scenario. For example, um, somebody that is out in the public in a very open area like the shooting that took place uh, there in Las Vegas, um, how you prepare and how you react is going to be different than maybe being on the inside of a place of business where You've got offices and furniture and things that you can use to uh, to perhaps uh, protect yourself. Walk us through, if you would, some of the things that we need to be aware of ahead of time and how, most importantly, we need to react. Absolutely. Um, So just as you said, everything is going to depend on the situation, and that's why it's called situational awareness or a general defensive mindset as it relates to you and your surroundings. And this is commonly taught in any martial arts school, if anybody's taken a martial arts class among your your listenership. It's keeping an eye out for the exits. It's looking for people who are around you who might be behaving suspiciously. It's knowing where your family members are. And it's having that plan and that kind of ability to react a little bit more quickly because you know generally what to do based on your environment. If you're out in the Gilroy Garlic Festival, there's a lot of open space. There's not a lot of cover, really. There's concealment tents, vendor booths, things of that nature that bullets will travel through. Uh, Similarly with a Walmart, if you're behind a clothing rack, that clothing rack isn't going to stop any incoming rounds, but it could provide concealment to break your line of sight from the shooter. And to get into those types of things, what people ought to do when they're entering a space is generally to know the exits anyway, because as I mentioned before, if you're in a fire or an earthquake, you're probably going to want to have those. You're going to want to talk to your family and say, if we can't get to exit A, we're going to get to exit B. And if this happens, this is what we're going to do. So knowing your surroundings, knowing your exits, and having that communication is vitally important because that will prevent you from freezing and allow you to react quicker. From that point, what you're going to do depends on your environment and the proximity that you have to the shooter, the distance. If you're a long ways away, then running is always going to be the best option. Trying to run, maybe not in a direct line away, but turning a corner or ducking your head low so that the shooter can't see you and therefore is going to be much less likely to engage you. Those things are important. Getting to an exit. Knowing your exits are important so that way you don't run into an area that could potentially pigeonhole you and prevent you from moving further or lock you into a corner, which is the worst place that you want to be. 
if you're closer to the shooter, you're going to have to make a decision between running and hiding. You could potentially duck down for a brief second, keep an eye out for the shooter, know where they are, wait till they're reloading, wait till they look somewhere else, and then decide to run. But what you can also do if you're in an office environment, as opposed to being in a uh, Gilroy Garlic Festival or on the street in Dayton or in the Walmart in El Paso, at that point, if you're in an office environment, you can you have the option of barricading, which is to simply shut the door, turn off the lights, move a heavy piece of furniture in, in, in front of that door, and hunker down. And that's called that's the hiding option. The remainder of those hiding options can simply just be hitting the deck, which is what a lot of people in the Gilroy Garlic Festival did as soon as they heard the gunfire. They ducked down. They were low to the ground and not preventing any errant rounds from accidentally coming in and hitting them, which may or may not have been aimed shots. And if you get really close to a shooter, you're going to have to fight, and you're going to have to fight for your life. You're going to have to improvise a weapon, look for something around you that you can pick up, that you can hit the shooter with, hit his hands, hit his head, hit vital areas of his body. In a Walmart, it could be a sporting goods section. It could be something as simple as a chair or a stick or something in your vicinity that you can use. You're going to want to gain control of the weapon if you possibly can. And I don't mean some fine motor move disarm or anything like that. I mean trying to physically grab and tackle using big muscle groups. Cooperate with the people around you who can potentially help you in that situation. Tackle and disarm a gunman because police are going to be arriving very, very quickly is what they're trained to do. And many of these events, there are officers on scene. There are officers on scene in Gilroy and in Dayton. In Dayton, they engage the, the subject in under... 30 seconds, and Gilroy was in under a minute. And those crucial moments, being able to simply tackle somebody and take them to the ground for an unarmed civilian or improvising a weapon, those might be the difference between you surviving that encounter and you not. But you have to have a fight mindset. You have to know it's going to be very, very bad and that you could potentially get shot in that encounter. But that's the best chance that you have is to engage them at that point. So it sounds like the options basically kind of come into broader categories of either cover, concealment, escape. Uh, maybe we could add to that list just, you know, the, the old, uh, you know, um, hit the deck, as you say, which is certainly military. If you're out um, engaged in warfare on the battlefield, uh, incoming, the first thing you do is hit the ground, cover the back of your neck and your head. And I suppose in terms of, of again, proximity to uh, the shooter and barring the ability to either find easy, easy escape or or uh, significant cover or concealment. That's your only real option. Yes, that's correct. And to summarize those steps, it's situational awareness is paramount, and that exists at all times. Then when shooting happens, you're going to run, hide, and fight, generally speaking in that order. What about a scenario, Brad, where... You're, you're not clear on exactly where the fire is coming from, but we, we've heard oftentimes from, from witnesses, they think, well, it sounded like a car backfiring or firecrackers going off or, or fireworks going off. If you're unclear, are there tips that you need to keep in mind to make sure that you're not actually running toward danger as opposed to away from it? Yes, and that's a tricky situation because gunfire will echo, as will a lot of other noises, depending on the environment that you're in. You could think that something is left where it's really right. The two things that you will keep in mind is, first of all, if you're hearing cracks, that means somebody's shooting at you because those are the supersonic rounds going over your head. That's the sonic boom that you're hearing. If, and additionally, gunfire is going to be very loud. If you hear a firecracker a ways away, it means you're probably not that close to the shooter. 
because if you were, you would certainly know it. You'd get an initial freeze reaction because those gunshots are going to be 150 decibels. They're going to be deafening in, in close proximity. And if they're firecrackers, a good piece of advice would be to run away from the sound of the firecrackers. They might simply have just been firecrackers. And at that point, you've lost a little bit of time and maybe looked a little bit silly, but if it did turn out not to be fire, firecrackers, then you would have been uh, in a better situation. But the thing is, is that the important thing is that people are being aware now that an active shooter event can occur. If fireworks go off at this point versus maybe five or ten years ago, people might immediately assume that that's an active shooter and they'll have crucial time to react. And knowing that will allow for uh, people to create that distance as necessary. And it's just, it all comes back down to that situational awareness. Now, of course, knowing your exits and knowing the major thoroughfares and all that other stuff helps. But if you're really not sure, it might be a good idea to hunker down where you're at or hit the deck and wait and listen uh, without necessarily having to run across the thoroughfare. That This all depends on where you are, and if these situations are very fluid, and there's no panacea to survival, except knowing that bullets can travel through pretty much anything, especially if they're rifle rounds. Hitting the deck will minimize your profile, but running will get you a distance away, and, and the farther you are away, the less chance you're going to get shot. Finally, for leadership, maybe it's uh, within a business, maybe within an organization like a church. We saw the uh, vulnerability that happened at, at Charleston and other cases. Um, or if you're a uh, the owner or operator of any public venue, maybe it's a movie theater, whatever the case might be, the businesses need to have some kind of a, a plan in place in order to, to engage in their, their response to these active shooter situations. Um, so I, I think businesses should always train for emergencies. That emergency can be any type of exigent threat. Again, an environmental disaster, things of that nature. Having a plan in place doesn't take that long. And learning the, the specifics of the of the layout and training your employees, even briefly, I think can be can be life saving. What some organizations, for example, a church, can do, uh, and we've actually worked with one organization like this, is some of their parishioners decided that they were going to get CCW permits. They did, and they kind of acted as an informal security force. And what they contracted us about was trying to figure out how they should move and how they should communicate and how they should work with each other because they hadn't had any training in that. And these, any type of firefight can be really chaotic. And one of the questions about a CCW, concealed carry permit, is that if you're engaging a threat and law enforcement arrives on the scene, could they mistake you for the threat? And that's absolutely something that could happen. And there's a lot of nuance to that type of training. But I think it really depends on how you're going to define your office. And a lot of training is going to come down to not just response training, but awareness training. Recent research has shown that a lot of these mass shooters have reached some sort of a, a crisis point in their lives. That they're starting to exhibit erratic behavior, that they might become suicidal. And if you're running a movie theater or a small organization like that, the chances of a disgruntled employee coming in to, in to engage you and cause damage are going to be much higher than maybe potentially a random off of the street for a, for a large target. So training your staff on how to recognize signs of people who might be under distress, who might be posting erratic content online, they might be posting extremist content, and how to react to them with human resources and with law enforcement, I think is incredibly valuable for any organization to have. 
Some good advice from Brad Ingman. Brad, again, is with Bay Area-based Threat Scenarios. Now, maybe you're in just that situation. You are a pastor, church leader, business owner. You have employees or clients that at any time could be at risk in uh, your place of business or uh, uh, your public venue, and you'd like to get some advice and some uh, consulting, then uh, feel free to reach out. ThreatScenarios.com is Brad's website at ThreatScenarios.com. Our thanks to Brad Engman, co-owner of Threat Scenarios, for that insight. Um, you know, as, as Brad indicated, the uh, situation is fluid, and it's really hard to tell, but in every case, you have to have at least some sort of plan in place. When's the earthquake going to hit? We don't know. How much damage is the building going to sustain? We don't know. If there's smoke, there's fire, what floor is the fire on? Who knows? Um, But at least in all of these scenarios, we make sure that we have an exit plan in place. We know how to get under a desk, get into the doorway. We know where to pull the handle to alert the fire department, dial 911, grab the fire extinguisher. We generally have a sense of awareness of our surroundings, where the nearest exit are, to deal with some of the more common potential threats in any scenario. Now we add to that list, sadly enough, apparently active shooter until such time as our culture and our politics and our spirituality in this country, for that matter, get their act together. Our thanks to uh, Brad Ingman. Again, information on the web at ThreatScenarios.com. 5.33 on the clock. Let's get you caught up on traffic. We'll swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center for an update. Now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. From the intenseness of our last conversation, we're going to change things up to a dialogue a little bit more uplifting. I want to talk for a moment about the supernatural, uh, not the TV series, but the term. You know, Webster's defines it as either of relating to God or the second definition, and that is, and I quote here, departing from what is usual or normal especially so as to appear to transcend the laws of nature. Wow. Now, when you think about this from a biblical standpoint versus our, our um, earthly, grounded mind, our fleshly form of thinking, um, certainly the existence of God is a supernatural thing. Even more so is God's love for us. I mean, think about that. Why does God need to invest himself into loving this sinful, offensive, fallen creature of his. And then when you move beyond the supernaturalness of God's love to look at the supernatural means of salvation, you know, wouldn't any of us like to be able to go down to the mortgage company to pay off our house or the the loan company to pay off the car and say, I know this is my debt. I earned it. It's a legitimate one. I'm the one responsible to pay for it. But somebody else is going to come in and pay it on my behalf. And they're going to do that with no strings attached, 
not because I did a nice thing for them or obeyed the law, but simply because of the supernaturalness of God's love for us. And of course, as much as God has provided a supernatural means of salvation, he also has, and get this, a supernatural plan for our lives. And anybody who's walked in Christ for any length of time knows that if you really pay attention along the way, at an outstanding number of turns, you find God operating in very supernatural ways. You'll find it if you look for it. You'll experience more so if you're open to it, of simply surrendering your life and letting the supernatural God do supernatural things in your life and ultimately use you as a tool for his kingdom and do supernatural things through your life. My next guests on the program know full well of that sense of God and his supernaturalness. We met briefly Mike Rovner a couple of months ago. He is the owner of Mike Rovner Construction. He, along with his lovely wife, Janet, are also marketplace pastors for City Church down in Ventura, and they both join us today on this edition of Lifeline. And Mike and Janet, great to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, We're going to pick up the story, if we can, a little bit for the benefit of listeners, Mike, that may not recall um, our dialogue a little bit ago. Uh, Yours is a fascinating one. Uh, You were a guy just kind of working your way through life. It sounds like you had, um, how should we say this politely, a a, a very um, entrepreneurial streak from a very young age that had both good and bad attached to it. And and at one point in that entrepreneurial career of yours, uh, you got involved in selling drugs. Tell us what led you to all of that. I understand that in a sense, it's kind of the, uh, was kind of the family business. Yeah, so um the people um, uh, that know me know that I've been a, an entrepreneur since the age of 13, and what it was was from the age of 13, I was a drug dealer, and it was kind of our family business. Uh, my uncles and my stepdad were all in that business, and so uh, that kind of lifestyle continued till um, I was in my mid-20s, and, um, and I met my beautiful wife, Janet, who's on the other line in the other office, and um, I fell in love with Janet, and she... Um, was a backslidden Christian, and she kept on talking about getting her life right with God, and uh, one Sunday she asked me if I wanted to go with, and so um, I said yes, and so I went to church with her, and uh, prayed this simple prayer at the end of the service, and it was like this, Craig, God, come in my life and take the things out that you want out, and put the things in that you want in, in Jesus' name, and uh, the very next day my house got raided by the police, so... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you had to have thought at that point, okay, God, now, was this exactly in the contract there? You, I would imagine you were looking for a change for the better, not for the worse. Yeah, I, you know, I actually, I didn't know what was going to happen, but, um, you know, I, I prayed that night when I was in jail, and I, I really felt like God spoke to me, and I didn't really know anything about God. I mean, I was, you know, brand new. And I really felt like God said, um, I did this for you. I have a new plan for your life. And that was uh, 27 years ago. He really, at that moment, um, captured your attention in a very literal sense. 
I mean, there was Absolutely. going to be a season. I understand you. You ultimately you weren't convicted of anything, but you ended up spending about four months in jail while all of this sort of played out through the legal system. And during that amount of time, I would imagine God really had an opportunity to get your attention singularly. And 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 in that jailhouse experience, what what began to happen in terms of the of, of the rooting of God's love in your heart? Well, you know what happened was uh, for several months it was like nine months of going to court back and forth and and during that time uh jan and i found a little church uh and so i remember the sunday us praying god send us to the church that you want us to go to and uh that sunday we went to a little church in simi valley which is the town that we grew up and it was really the perfect place for us i mean the pastors were our our professors of the word of god and we were kind of the unchurched and so that process started for about I'd say about six months or nine months, and then I went to jail for three months and um, uh, got took care of that and then came back, and then we got married right after that. And this was very, uh, in, in a sense, new and foreign to you, wasn't it? You, you, you describe yourself as having been, as I alluded to in my opening remarks, raised in a broken, dysfunctional home. And your your family were non practicing Jews, so you really didn't have much of a involvement or brush with uh, with church or religion of any sort when you were a young man growing up, did you? Uh, I never did, but you know I did have one experience when I was uh, really young, probably about ten years old. I used to go to uh, a church and play uh, games out in front. They had like game night for the teens, and there was like a young youth pastor that befriended me. And he was so kind to me. So I always remembered this youth pastor that was totally kind to me. And, you know, and we, we didn't have the money to uh, go on, like, there was a trip that they went to the snow. And I remember him letting me go without any money, uh, giving me $5 to rent a toboggan, and then sharing his lunch with me because I didn't have any, uh, any money. And that left an impression on you as a 10-year-old boy. Absolutely. You know, that's that's important, I think, for listeners to capture because it's demonstrative of the notion that sometimes just the little gestures that we do in life. A lot of people think that from a from a evangelistic standpoint, it has to be okay. If someone's come across my path, I will preach to them uh, sin, salvation, sanctification, bring out the booklet, describe to them the four spiritual laws, and then at that moment ask if they want to kneel and pray and accept Jesus Christ. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me don't, – don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But what I am trying to say is that sometimes just the little touches, the little acts of kindness that we do that allows the love of Christ to shine through us can make an enormous impression on another person's life. May they necessarily commit to Christ at that very time or moment. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. But at the end of the day, if we're trusting the Holy Spirit – to carry through the job, as Scripture tells us, right? One plants, another waters, God gives the increase. I want to pause on that point. We're going to come back. We're going to meet Janet Rover. Janet, I'm fascinated to find out the answer to the question. So you're dating your drug dealer? <laughs> Mike and Janet Rovner with us today. They are Marketplace Pastors at City Church in Ventura. Uh, Mike, as we mentioned, is the very successful owner of a large construction company here in California. And uh, Janet is a business person as well. She operates a salon and day spa. And we're talking about not just um, marketplace evangelism, but most importantly, how to live out our lives in such a fashion that God can really do in us and through us 
supernatural things. We take a time out back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. 547 as we get you an update on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Our visit today is with Mike and Janet Rovner. We mentioned that they are marketplace pastors with City Church in Ventura. Mike is the owner of Rovner Construction, and Janet runs her own business as well, Salon and Day Spa. And uh, Janet, let me bring you into the conversation. First, welcome. Great to have you with us today. And, uh, you know, we've all heard the, the term missionary de- dating, but 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 d- dating your drug dealer? I mean, Janet, really? <laughs> Um, yes, well, I was not, um, I had been away from the Lord for a few years. I had, um, gone through a divorce and kind of turned to drugs to ease the pain and just was at a point where I knew I just wanted Jesus back in my life. Um, so I just said, hey, you want to come with me? (laughs) This is what I need to do. And Mike, your reaction were you were you warm or cool to the idea of hey, let's go to church? Uh, you know, I I was pretty much at a point where I was so deeply in love with her, I would go anywhere she wanted. So um, she had said, "Hey, I'm going to go to church," and I'm like, "Yeah, I'll go with you." But I, you know, honestly, I would go anywhere with her. At. And, and there's a, and there's a patch of hot coals in front of the church doors. You just have to cross over that to get in. But you were there. <laughs> I'm I'm getting a lot of static. I am too. Should I hang up this phone? You know, you both both sound fine on this end. Uh, we okay, can maybe perfect. try to reconnect after the uh, after the break here. Um, okay. So, Janet, tell us a little bit about your story. So, you you mentioned that during this time when you were dating Mike, that you were a backslidden believer, but you really felt that tug of the Holy Spirit drawing you back into Himself. Um, yeah. When you two went to church that Sunday morning, and Mike went forward and actually gave his life to Christ, were you surprised to see that happen? Um, no, not at all. I think um, I was there for a purpose, um, like to recommit my life to Christ, and so I sort of dragged him up to the front. <laughs> and... um and on the heels of that, um, you mentioned, of course, Mike, there was a raid on your house the very next day. It was actually their, their, your uncle that they were look, looking for, wasn't it? Yeah, that's that's right. They were looking for my uncle, and it was the very next day because uh, we went to church on May 31st, 1992, and the raid on my house was on June 1st, 1992. And so they came when they came in, I'm like, okay, well, I have, you know, this marijuana, and here's, here it is. So I pretty much just kind of turned myself in when they came. And at the point at which you were able to finally contact Janet and say, hi, honey, I'm in jail. Uh, Janet, what was your response to that? I don't, you know what? I don't really remember, but I think I knew everything was okay. You you had the sense that I'm 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 beginning to to hear that you really had the sense that God had a plan that there was nothing here that was happening by accident whether it was 
you're meeting Mike, dating Mike, Mike agreeing to go to church, Mike responding to the altar call, or the very next day, Mike getting arrested. Did you really then, deep in your heart, have the sense that God had a bigger plan here, maybe even beyond your wildest dreams? Yes. Yes. Because I knew the drugs couldn't stay. <laughs> yeah, clear, clearly something was going to have to give here if it was all going to work for your life and your eventually your lives together. What point was was the decision made? Who who um, who proposed the whom here? What point the decision made that this was going to be a, a long term relationship? Um, I would say you know like. I was um, I was always like pursuing Janet, and so just at, at some point, um, you know, she figured out that um, I wasn't going to go away. So um, she finally uh, agreed to marry me, and so we got married in 1993. And so we just had our 25th anniversary last year, and so in December will be our 26th anniversary. Well, congratulations on that. That's a, that's an important milestone. And a couple of adult kids, I understand, out of the relationship, both doing well? Yeah, yes. the, the both kids are doing great. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, Janet, as you look back on the last 25, 26 years, um, there's got to be an unbelievable list of all the times that God, from early on in your relationship to present day, where he intervened in a in a significant way, and as I suggested in my opening remarks tonight, really demonstrated some supernatural engagement for both of you. Absolutely. I mean, I think just giving our lives to him and and just that in itself is supernatural. You know, him taking our lives and putting them back together and doing what he's done with them. And Mike, what was your family's response? You, you mentioned having been raised in a non-religious home, and uh, all of a sudden you're dating this girl. You have now made a commitment to Christ, and on the backside of some of your uh, brief legal challenges, you're getting plugged into a church. God's beginning to work on you. How is the family reacting to the changes that they saw in you? Well, you know, I would say that when it first happened, people thought it was a that, like a phase I was going through. And I remember uh, one of my uncles said, hey, I'm really, really worried about you. You know, like you're just, you know, really getting too much into this Jesus thing. Like, um, you know, like that I had overdosed on Jesus. And, you know, there were many times prior that, you know, like I was close to probably ODing on drugs, and they didn't seem to be worried, but now they were concerned that... Um, that I might uh, get too much Jesus, but I, I will tell you, in just short amount of times, people started in my Jewish family started to become Christian, and I would have to say that almost every person in my family, in immediate family for sure, and a lot of people uh, in the greater part of my family ended up becoming Christian over the next, you know, I would say maybe five or ten years. And isn't it amazing the way it so often happens like that, that a a mildly uh, religious to entirely secular family will initially react with a sense of, of, of shock and, and maybe even a little bit of dismay, even though you're coming out of bad things? Like, well, you're no longer, you know, involved in gang warfare and, uh, you know, uh, stealing cars, but we're concerned that this religious thing is going a little bit too far. <laughs> Isn't it funny the way people sometimes react that way? 
child, absolutely. If you've just joined our conversation, a visit today with Mike and Janet Rovner, and uh, we're getting a sense of uh, not only their own personal story of how God brought them together, but when we come back after a timeout, we're going to talk about supernatural ways in which God has manifested his love and ministered in them and through them since that time. Many important lessons, I think, here to be learned in terms of learning how to surrender one's life to the Lord and, you know, that important scripture that we should not hide our our flame, our testimony under that bushel basket, right? But rather put it up high so that it can be seen by all and to see the ways in which God will honor you when you honor him. Mike has stories that could fill probably eight hours of radio time just on the ways in which God has been faithful as he has been faithful in blessing Mike's business. We're going to talk a bit about that and the all-important marketplace evangelism. What exactly does that look like? As our conversation with Mike and Janet Rovner continues on this edition of Lifeline. Six o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. Let's get a look at what's going on out there traffic-wise for you on this Tuesday. The latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 